because everyone almost, at one time or another, has felt abandoned by God. Almost all of us have prayed, my God, my God, where are you now? And why, why aren't you here? Why aren't you doing anything? Why have you forsaken me? I remember at seven years old, I was pounding my fist on my parents' dresser and telling God, he, he better bring my grandfather and uncle back to life. Um, and, and where is God now? I mean, okay, so uh, that Jesus quoted this psalm from the cross is a revelation of how deeply he was plunged into human suffering, that he felt what we feel. It's not that Jesus was abandoned by God. He was right in the center of God's will. He was doing exactly what had been predicted of him by God's prophets and exactly what God wanted of him. Um, but he felt it. He felt forsaken. He felt abandoned. Um, he felt like in that moment God wasn't there for him. And he shared with us this, this feeling. Secondly, this looks like a psalm of despair, and as much as I read, it seems that way, um, and it begins that way. But it's actually a psalm of hope, and in it, the poet will tell his story. Now, he, he does not give details about his story. He tells it in broad strokes, and that's really good for us, because we have our own details. And so the things that he covers, okay, you don't have to know what he means by the bulls of Bashan that were surrounding him. I mean, what was it about Bashan bulls anyway that you know, made this special? You don't have to know, it doesn't matter. Because you have your own adversities and, and obstacles to deal with. Uh, and so it, the psalm is open that way. That we can read it, and we can we can connect with it, and say, "Well, I don't know exactly what his problem was. It was a long time ago, far away, but I know what my problems are, and I have the same type of feeling, and I have a similar story to it." So he tells his story, and um, as we read it, we can see how he worked his way, or perhaps better yet, how he prayed his way through these things from. Abandonment to God's embrace, from anxiety to serenity, from distress to peace. Now, isn't that worth looking at this morning? Um, if we can follow the path, follow the trail of his story, and in our own story, pray our way through the stuff that comes to us into peace. Let's see how he did this. Um, he begins with a question why, which is rarely a fruitful question when you're going through hard times. Uh, it's not always the best place to begin. In fact, it's often useless to even ask. It's, it's a waste of psychic energy. Why, why this, why now, why, why, why? Um, Daniel Siegel refers to why as the left hemisphere, that is the left hemisphere of the brain, the left hemisphere's favorite pursuit of exploring. The left side of our cortex appears to specialize in the cause-effect explanations of logical reasoning that is so coveted in science and in schools and perhaps in modern society in general. Let's ask why. Uh, let's ask what was the cause to this effect 
But some events defy cause and effect rules. You, you can't locate a cause. If there's an answer to why, only God knows it, and he's not telling. At least not usually. And besides, if you're standing at the grave of someone you've deeply loved and bonded with in life, and you're asking why, why do they have to go now? Would having the answer really help that moment? Would it resolve the, the, the grief? We say, well, it would give me closure. Yeah, but the pain would go on. You know, closure doesn't mean an end to pain. It just means you know it's reality now. And that's that just is hard. So, um, it doesn't do any good to say why. Nevertheless, we can't help it when our souls are being wrung out. It naturally floats up from our confusion. And so even with Jesus, he asks why. If I were giving titles to each section of this psalm, verses 1 and 2 I would entitle, When Prayer Doesn't Work. Um, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. All day long, I'm praying through this thing. And at night, I can't even sleep. You know, so I'm still calling out to him, but the answer is not forthcoming. It doesn't seem to work. And the problem may be, pardon me, I think for some of us, the problem is that we have expectations about what prayer is supposed to produce. Um, that, well, you know, I prayed about this, and, um, and I keep praying about it, but my neighbor's dog is still alive. <laughs> well, what were you expecting um, your, your prayer to do? Uh, and a lot of times we, we are praying for changes in the world. But what if God is listening with his arms folded, and we say, God, why? And he says, I'm waiting for you to pray for changes in you. Because maybe that's what prayer is more about than magically working changes in the world. Maybe it's about changing me. You know, if God can change me, that changes my whole world. Everything changes. I see everything differently. I was thinking about this earlier. You know, we, we want to be able to look through the eyes of Jesus. Um, look at the world through the eyes of Jesus. We'll see everything differently. But I'd also like to think that the world can see Jesus in our eyes. That there's enough pain that they can relate to that, that there's enough compassion that they can relate to that, there's enough light of hope that they can relate to that, and that they can see the work of Jesus through our eyes. Um, Maggie Dawn uh, saying, may our eyes be kind, may they speak of you. It would be wonderful if we all had those kind eyes that spoke of Jesus. Anyway, uh, it isn't clear why he would be praying, oh God, I cry by night, and, uh, or by night I find no rest, yet you are holy. How does that fit? How does he make that transition? Here I am, why have you forsaken me? I'm praying, nothing's happening. Yet you are holy. Um, maybe he's saying, and this is what it sounds like to me. Maybe he's saying, yet the fault's not yours. 
because you're God and you don't make mistakes. So it must be something to me. I must be doing something wrong. Uh, I must be way off here. Um, this, this system that has worked in the past, our fathers cried out to you. They cried out to you and you rescued them. And that, that's what history has taught, taught the, the poet. Um, that they cried out to you and you did things. But, but they were heroes. They were your favorites. And, and, and you're holy. And, um, and you don't make mistakes. So it must be me. I, I think this is the conclusion that he draws. That I'm not like my ancestors. Verse 6. But I am a worm. And not a man. Um, this is typical, but it's wrong. I mean, it's, it's typical to say, okay, I must be doing something wrong with my prayer. I must not be using King James language. <laughs> Thou, O God, in thy magnificence hast taught me I am but a worm. Um, no, that didn't work. Uh, there's got to be some formula. There's all kinds of books written on prayers about the magic formula to, to pray. Um, uh, abracadabra in Jesus' name, amen. And, and uh, it, the, the mistake here is beginning is the beginning where he's assuming that God's abandoned him. Um, God hasn't abandoned him. God hears everything that he prays. That's that's not that's not the problem. But he says, I'm a worm and not a man. I'm I'm scorned by mankind and despised by the people. You know, this is terrible because shame undermines our confidence. Our confidence in God and our confidence around others. But since you've never experienced shame, you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but for me, uh, I'm hypersensitive to humiliation and I experience it all the time you know, when I shouldn't. I mean, it's, it's not there, but I toss it out there. Uh, or I toss it around in here. Um, and then shame has undermined his confidence, I'm sure, scorned by mankind, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They make faces at me and wag their heads. He, he quite naturally moves to this state of public humiliation um, that there are people making fun of me. They're ridiculing my failed system. Uh, he trusts in the Lord, they're saying, let God deliver him. God takes so much pleasure in him. And uh, again, like in verse 3, he bumps into this contradiction. This is happening to me, verse 9. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Like, you know, ever since I was a baby, you know, I, I learned about trust in you. That's where I learned about our ancestors and their trust in you and what you did for them. And I've always been getting these lessons about trust. And, and so I, I, you know, this is how I've lived. And this is what I believe. And now it's not working for me. So he repeats his, his request. And, and he describes his problem. Um, and his request is, be not far from me. And he'll say this again. Just don't be so far away, God. And then he tells God about his, his problem.
problem, the people who, who are after him. Now, here's something that amazes me regarding the writers of the Old Testament, is the incredible way that they read their bodies. He describes emotional distress in physiological terms. My heart is melted like wax. All my <coughs> bones are out of joint. My tongue sticks to my jaws. And I remember the band The Who. Who. Um, who's on first? The band Who and uh, singing, or, or, uh, saying these lines in one of their songs. Uh, my strength is dried like a potsherd. And I remember that because in that Canadian accent, potsherd just sounded like it worked. Doesn't work in my American English. But um, one of the lessons that we've learned from neuroscience is that situations that are extremely hurtful emotionally or intensely painful physically, uh, situations that are unavoidable or uh, inescapable, that are life threatening or, or simply overwhelming cause communication in the brain to break down. That the, the uh, brain stem stops communicating with the prefrontal cortex. We've got an emergency, we have to handle it here, down here in the, exec in the, uh, in the worker, in the bottom floor. The executive part of the brain, that's the third floor, and in between there are all the emotional people, the mid-level management, in the limbic system. And, uh, and these parts of the brain stop communicating with each other. That's how trauma gets recorded in the nervous system, but without being recorded as a normal memory. So that when post-traumatic stress occurs, it's just an acting out of the nervous system's memory without a story from the pre- frontal cortex to explain the acting out. Okay, so we know that that like all the bones going out of joint, that, that, that there's this disconnection within our nervous system. You know, I think that ancient people listened to their bodies more than we do. And they had a better ear for what was going on. Uh, there's this proverb that says, pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. If, if you're getting pleasant words all the time, you're gonna have strong bones. Why? Well, because if you're not, if you're getting all kinds of stress and worry words, uh, unpleasant words, if you're getting ragged on all the time, belittled all the time, you're going to have excess stress and your body's going to produce excess cortisol and that's going to attack your bones and the health of your bones. How did they know that? <laughs> 800 years BC. Well, they didn't know it, they just felt it. They felt that deep inside, something was rotting because of all the negativity that they carried. But deep inside, something was being healed by the bonding experiences of pleasant words from people who care. Now, here in, uh, in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. 
you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. May you, um, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him, and shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. The sturdy shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Uh, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. He has come through to me. That sounds like the poet has made a, a dramatic turn and a full turn from his despair. But not exactly. I know, I'm always throwing a monkey wrench into things. But um, what actually is going on here, this form of speech in the Psalms is called a vow of praise. And it typically goes like this. If you do that for me, God, I'll do this for you. Uh, Bert Lancaster was one time in at that around that rather famous scene where he's in the ocean, he thinks he's gonna drown, he's swimming towards the shore, and he's saying, Oh God, save me. Let me make it to shore. If I make it to shore, I'll give you 90% of everything I own. And he gets a little closer to the shore and he says, God, please just get me to shore, I'll give you 75% of everything. <laughs> and the closer he gets, the further down the, you know. But that's the vow of praise. You do this for me, I'll do that for you. This is kind of a mercenary quality to it. But this is what it is. In fact, he, he makes specific reference to his vows in uh, verse 25. Um, and what it does for the poet is it enables him to be confident in the present regarding something he trusts God to do in the future. So you do this for me, I'll do that for you. And now he does sing with confidence. There's one more thought here. Um, even though this is one person who is praying. This is the prayer of one person. It's called a psalm, of the, a psalm of the Individual. The presence of others in the psalm is crucial. First, there were the others who were tormenting him. Their presence is really important to understand why he's distraught and why he prays this prayer, why he feels abandoned. Everyone's against me. Uh, no one will play foursquare with me. Uh, and it not only has to do with his breakdown, but, but others also have to do with his recovery. He talks about what he's going to tell people and how he's going to rejoin the congregation. This would be the, the congregation gathered in the temple. And he's going to give testimony to God. That's how he's going to pay his vows. He's going to talk about how wonderful God is and how God answered his prayer and what he did for him. Uh, 
Okay, so, so people matter. People can destroy us and people can restore us. There is a type of communication that links human minds. Now, again, neuroscience has taught us a lot about this, about empathy and mirror neurons and that sort of thing. Um, but in, let's say, small groups where people can talk openly, without fear, and others can listen without judgment, and everyone can be with each other in empathy, you know, seeking to feel what the others are feeling, then minds link. There's an integration of, of thought and minds that occurs. Um, Paul, writing to the Romans, talked to, to them about the life of the community of Christians there in Rome. And, and he tells them how to practice that life together. And at the end of it, he says, so that you'll all be of the same mind. He talks to the Philippians uh, and says, this is our goal, that we all have one mind. And he's not talking about us all being brainwashed, though there are a lot of churches where you can go to get that if you want <laughs> He's not talking about, you know, everybody has to believe what I believe or think the way I think. But there is this consensus that, that occurs, that emerges in these open, caring communities. And it turns out that the integration of human minds in a setting like that increases the integration that goes on in each individual's mind. So we are talking about the mind that's falling to pieces. You know, I feel so scattered all over the place. Um, the bones out of joint, you know, the, the non-communication of different structures in the brain. Well, integration is the healing of those disintegrated parts. Integration of the mind of the community helps each individual mind. Okay, I'm just going to make a little ad for Wednesday night and Wednesday afternoons. Uh, that Lexio Divina does this. And when Lexio Divina starts, and I can say probably nine times out of ten, you think that's not going to happen tonight. <laughs> I don't agree with that person. I don't even agree with the scripture that was read. Um, uh, I don't, you know. I'm ready to head for the door. But then, as a community begins to sit in prayer together, and to listen together, and to talk without fear of judgment, talk openly, this wisdom begins to emerge. And it, it emerge is the right word, because it's, a, it's like a syncretism, where the sum of the whole is greater or, or the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, that something is now moving in our conversation that transcends us. And I may not walk away with the same thoughts that you had, but my thoughts have been polished and buffed and improved by your thoughts, formed better by your thoughts, 
And I walk away with my thoughts more integrated. I'm more where I need to be. So there's a huge benefit here, and, um, and it happens in Alexia Okay, by the end of the song, the poet is no longer alone. <clears throat> He's with his people. He's with their God, worshiping God. And he's on his way towards integration and wholeness. The end. Oh, wait. Um, <laughs> yesterday morning, I was feeling stressed about today. Partly because um, I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. I said everything I know to say, and now it's just like rehashing old stuff. But um, I don't have a series in mind right now. So, it, um, you know, I'm not directed. I, I go wait. Saying, okay, God, what am I supposed to talk about? I have nothing to say. Um, why have you forsaken me? Uh, <laughs> so, when you, you get to Saturday, you're kind of down to the wire. All right. Um, my granddaughter, Allison, uh, 11 years old, going on 16. Grandma, you're coming to our dance recital on Saturday, huh? Well, when is that? Well, it's two weeks. Well, Allison, I work on Saturdays. That's a work day for me. You know how your dad has work days? That's a work day for me. I can't. But Grandpa, it's only three hours. That will get me in the right frame of mind. So this past week, on Wednesday, I'm taking her to school. Grandpa, you're coming. Please come to the dance recital. And Friday, I'm picking her up from school. Grandpa, you're coming to the recital, right? Addison, I told you Saturday's a work day for me. And uh, I, I just, I'll tell you what, if God works a miracle and I have my sermon by 12 o'clock, I'll be there. And she was okay with that. I knew there's no way. Um, but I have my house. And then in the morning, you know, I'm stressed and I'm thinking of all the kids who don't have a parent or grandparent who goes to any of their little league games. You know, dad never went to my, you know, whatever it is. And, and I thought, well, it must be important to her that I'm there. Now, her dad's there. Her other two grandmothers are there. Um, her mom is there. Um, her siblings are there. In fact, one of her siblings is in the dance recital with her. Um, Adriana, I love Adriana. Adriana is so fixated on the mirror in the morning. It's like, here, She got an award last week, a dance award. Thank God we didn't do the recital. She got an award last week um, of the most daring uh, dancer. Um, Addison was the most flexible. So, okay, she really wants Grandpa to be there. And... deep breath and loosened my grip, my physical grip, my mental grip, um, all the stuff that had me stressed, and I just began to breathe. I felt a certainty that no matter what, all would be well, and that it did not depend on me at all, but on God who had been so faithful to me over the years. When I first began the practice of contemplative prayer. God lifted the depression that I had lived with for almost 40 years. And even today, most of my 
both anxieties are gone. But what I did not anticipate was all the new anxieties. <laughs> you know, I've got the old ones wired, but it's these new anxieties. Um, or, nor did I anticipate that my nervous system was incapable, incapable of achieving a steady state of trust so that I could remain flexible for any new anxiety that would come along. In fact, the old habits of anxiousness and depression are much stronger and deeper than the new habits and, and, and the new, say, victories of contemplative prayer that I've experienced. So yesterday, I happened to read this psalm and ran into the word trust, um, which occurs, I think, like four times in the psalm, three times in two verses. Trust. Trust, trust, and that's really what contemplative prayer is all about. And um, I was thinking of a pithy title like "Trust or Rust." Um, <laughs> <laughs> so thinking lame, but um, but I know ministers who would use it. Um, there, I said it. So anyway, um, trust is what changes our perspective. Trust is what changes me. I'm not consumed with anxiety or despair because I am able to trust now. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. And trust changes everything, not because it's an effective psychological tool but because there really is someone who is trustworthy. And I know I can trust him. I know that, that he will be there for me. So my trust is not um, futile. After meditating on trust in verses 3 through 5 and 9 and 10, I sat in silent prayer, and it came to me that God gives us trust moments. When all we have to do is rest in Him and enjoy the feeling of trust. Oh, this feeling of trust feels so much better than the anxiety. And I don't feel constricted inside, I feel freedom. I feel release. This is so much better. The psalmist says, You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. That reference to an infant, to the breasts of the mother, this is not just a time reference. Like, well, from the time I was a baby, I learned to trust you. It's more than that. It is an illustration, an example, a, a parable. He gives us a picture of what trust looks like. It's the nursing baby, <laughs> calm and content in the mother's arms. Everything it needs is right there. In another psalm, we read, But I have 
calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. I've calmed and quieted, but this is a trust moment. I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child on its mother's lap. In those trust moments, we learn the feeling of trust, that it is a good feeling and it's empowering. In trust moments, we are receptive to God's grace, everything we need, to all the nourishment that he's giving us in that moment. It's, it's why we pray, Give us this day our daily bread. And then we sit and trust and allow him to, to give. In trust, we bond with the one we trust. The mother and the infant are bonding. Um, if you haven't noticed this, infants don't, if you don't know them, don't usually like you looking in their eyes for very long. This is true most toddlers. They'll, they'll take it for a minute, but if you just keep staring at them, they're going to want to turn away from you. Um, it's, I don't know what it is, but a mom and an infant can stare into each other's eyes for a long time, and they're both soaking in that other person. And it, it has in part to do with trust. Um, I got to hold a baby yesterday at the dance recital. Here was my way. Uh, <laughs> it was I left at intermission. Sorry. But, um, but uh, they have a, a cousin, and she's only, a, I don't know, six months, nine months old, I guess. And she was so cute. She was sitting right in front of me, wearing the, the bleachers. And um, she just kept looking at me. So I said, okay. And I reached out to her, and her mom handed her over, so I got to hold her for a while. And she wanted to look at me, and I'm sure it was like, <laughs> I don't know, very strange, but intriguing somehow. <laughs> I'm not sure what to make of it. Then when she figured out, she wanted her mom again. <laughs> anyway, uh, we've got we have this picture of trust. And a, and a trust moment may be sitting on the porch where you get a break from your chores. Oh, this is nice. Oh, this is a trust moment. All the things I didn't do, I can trust God for. That either they'll get done or they don't need to get done. Um, that's the way I look at it anyway. <laughs> um, it's that, that sitting on the front porch, just being, or it's allowing someone someone's words or someone's arms to hold you, reassure, comfort, renew your trust. It's the time you spend in contemplative prayer letting God breathe his love into you. Those are all trust moments. And, and the more trust moments in our lives, the more effective our prayer in changing us. And the more changes in us, the better, the more we're transformed. Trust moments clear our heads, calm our emotions, and renew our strength. Trust moments recollect the pieces of the mind that 
have been scattered by headlines and deadlines. Trust moments integrate mind and body in a concentrated focus on Jesus, who because he was one of us, cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And went through that hell in order to bring us into his heaven. Would you stand with me, please? May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.